Once a little girl came home from Sunday school one Sunday morning. She was so excited. She announced, she said, Mom, God can do anything. He works miracles with his left hand. He heals with his left hand. He holds us close with his left hand. Well, the mother was so thrilled that her little girl was enthused about God, but she didn't quite understand her fixation with God's left hand. She told her daughter, she said, honey, she said, you realize that God can also use his right hand to do these things. The little girl, she shook her head. She said, no, mom, no, he can't. We learned in Sunday school this morning that Jesus is sitting on God's right hand. (laughs) Well, obviously, the little girl was slightly confused. Jesus isn't sitting on God's right hand. He's sitting at God's right hand. And Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 teach us that after Jesus rose from the dead, he did just that. He ascended to heaven where he is now sitting down at God's right hand. He's sitting with God on God's throne. Today he functions as an eternal high priest. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Now you remember in chapter 5 and in verse 10, the writer of Hebrews had introduced to us the priesthood of Jesus. That he's been called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then the writer says, of whom we have much to say. And yet you remember he was unable to say it because the Hebrews weren't ready for these deeper truths. His readers, they could handle the milk of the word, but they weren't ready for the meat. I ran across an interesting quote in his commentary on Hebrews. Warren Wearsby, he makes this observation. He says, the emphasis in Hebrews is not on what Christ did on the earth, the milk of the word, but what he is doing in heaven, the meat of the word. Wearsby is saying that the basics of the Christian life revolve around Jesus' earthly ministry and work while his priestly ministry constitutes the meat of God's word. Now, that's not usually how we see it. We don't think in those terms. But think it through tonight. Just think about it a minute. Jesus spent a mere three and a half years in his ministry on earth, whereas he has now spent 2,000 years ministering in heaven as our high priest. I think the priesthood of Jesus is indeed an important topic that we shouldn't overlook. And that, of course, is our subject tonight. Chapter 7 begins. For this Melchizedek. We've got to stop right there because this guy is a strange, strange fellow. Melchizedek is mentioned three times in Scripture. In Genesis 14, he gets brought up in his historical context. In Psalm 110, he's mentioned in a prophetic context. And here in Hebrews 7, he gets discussed in a doctrinal context. Now, if you were to name the top 10 major characters in the Old Testament, I'm sure that Moses and Noah and David and so forth would be on your list. But I'll bet you Melchizedek wouldn't be on anybody's list of top 10 Old Testament characters. I'll bet he wouldn't be on your top 50 list. But the writer of Hebrews surprises us by placing an amazing importance on the life and ministry of this obscure, cryptic character 
named Melchizedek. Now we're told first that Melchizedek was king of Salem. Salem means peace in Hebrew. It's short for the name Jerusalem or city of peace, Jerusalem. Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem and the priest of the Most High God. Now that he was both king and priest immediately tips us off to Melchizedek's unique status in the scriptures. You remember in Israel there was a sharp division between church and state. The kings were forbidden to become priests or to serve in any kind of priestly manner. The kings were from the tribe of Judah, the priests from the tribe of Levi. Any crossover in their responsibilities was forbidden. You remember in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, when King Uzziah tried to usurp the role of priest, God struck him with leprosy. That's a no-no, Uzziah. Pretty good way of proving it. Under the old covenant, God made with Israel, only Levites were allowed to serve as the priests before God. Only people from the tribe of Levi. You might say that the Levites wore the pre-washed jeans. That Melchizedek was both a king. That was supposed to be funny, by the way, in case you wanted to laugh. That Melchizedek was both a king and a priest means that he was of a different order of priesthood. That he stood outside of the requirements of the Old Testament, outside of the boundaries of the Levitical priesthood. He was something different, something special. We're also told that this Melchizedek met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now remember the story. A coalition of Syrian marauders raided the city of Sodom and they took Lot and the loot captive. Uncle Abraham came to the rescue. In Genesis 14, Abraham chases down the bandits. And he returns to Palestine with both Lot and the treasure. And it was on the way back from the rescue mission that Abraham met this man, Melchizedek, the king and priest of Salem. In Genesis 14, verse 18, we're told, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine He was the priest of God Most High. Notice that mention of the bread and wine. We'll come back to that. Melchizedek then blessed Abraham. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Of course, a tenth is another word for tithe. Tithe and tenth, same word. Here Abraham tithed the spoils of the conquest to Melchizedek. Elsewhere in Scripture, Abraham's act is held up as an example to us who are believers. This is where we get the principle of tithing, or of donating a tenth of our income to support the priestly ministry of the church of Jesus. Of course, Abraham's actions were a surprise for a man of his spiritual stature. Remember, Abraham was the most respected, one of the most honored persons in the whole Old Testament. And as we'll discover later, the blesser is always of higher stature than the one blessed. Just as the recipient of a tithe is of greater authority than the payer of that tithe. Just log that away. That Abraham humbled himself before Melchizedek was actually an acknowledgement of Melchizedek's superiority. 
And we're told more about this king priest, Melchizedek. First being translated king of righteousness. That's what the word means. Melchizedek, it means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. He's both king of righteousness and king of peace. He is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. That's a hint. He remains a priest continually. Now, how would you like to be the FBI agent assigned to do this guy's background check? Not a lot to go on here. No dad, no mom, no descendants, no birthday, no date of death. Hey, if you didn't know better, you would think that this guy was in the Federal Witness Protection Plan. There is actually much debate as to the actual identity of this man, Melchizedek. Was he simply a Canaanite priest, or was he more? The early church father Origen believed him to be an angel. Other scholars have suggested that he was Noah's son, Shem. Some commentators have explained away this mysterious description without father, without mother, etc., as more figurative than literal. To them, it's not that he had no parents, but that in contrast to the Levitical priests, his parentage was irrelevant when it came to substantiating his right to priest. That all sounds good, but that's not really what the writer says, is it? He literally says, without father, without mother. Hey, I personally believe that the description in verse 3, when taken literally, can really have but one explanation. Put it all together, king of righteousness, prince of peace. He, he, he comes carrying the elements of bread and of wine. What did we do this morning when we took communion? But we shared in the bread and in the wine the symbols of Christ's sacrifice for us. He had no human parentage or genealogy, no beginning of life or end of life. Well, in my opinion, taken literally, Melchizedek can be none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus. I believe that long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he served as the royal priest of Salem. Well, verse 4 tells us, Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Now the discussion gets very, very Jewish. And I, and I tried to find a picture of something very Jewish, and, and I think that pretty much does it. It's about as Jewish as you can get right there. Now remember this letter was written to Jews, so it, its issues, its arguments are relevant to Jewish concerns. What happened to the Levitical priesthood may not be that important to you and me, at least on surface value, but it was critical to the people who received this letter, these Hebrew believers. And by trying to put ourselves in their shoes, there's a lot we can learn in the process. Notice verse 5. And indeed those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them, or Melchizedek, he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. 
Now remember the concept. The receiver of a tithe, the initiator of a blessing or of greater spiritual stature than the payer of that tithe and the recipient of that blessing. Thus, when the nation paid tithes to the tribe of Levi, and the Levites blessed them in the priestly blessing, it became evident that the tribe of Levi was the superior son in the family of Abraham. But when Abraham paid tithes till Melchizedek and received his blessing, it also demonstrated that Melchizedek was superior to the whole family of Abraham. Follow the logic? Levi was the spirit superior son within the family, but Melchizedek was superior to the whole family itself, including the priesthood of Levi. Verse 8. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them. And notice the implication here that the Melchizedek of history apparently was more than a mortal man. He says, of whom it is witness that he lives. Now, Melchizedek was spoken of in Genesis chapter 14, oh, around the year 2200 B.C. But here the writer of Hebrews says that he lives. He still lives. He speaks in the present tense. He lives today. Melchizedek was a priest forever. That means he lives even today. And in an odd kind of Jewish way, the Levitical priests actually paid tithes to Melchizedek. And this is where our Western Gentile logic really breaks down. But just remember, this was written to Middle Eastern Jews. Remember that. Verse 9. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now realize, the Hebrew people believed in a concept called racial solidarity. In other words, that one man can act on behalf of a group of men. Recall, here's a great illustration of it. Recall the war between the Israelites and the Philistines. You remember each army, rather than experience the bloodshed of hundreds and thousands of soldiers dying on the battlefield, each army sent out a champion to fight on behalf of their respective armies. Instead of risking thousands of casualties, David and Goliath fought it out in a proxy war. Even an ancestor could be your proxy. One person could act on behalf of future generations. Thus, when Adam sinned, guess what? All men were stained with sin. All who've been born of Adam inherit his sin nature. Now, at first, people buck this principle. This doesn't sound fair. Why should I be responsible for someone else's mistake? But understand, it's got an upside. In the same way that I inherit Adam's sin, I also inherit Jesus' righteousness. Because Jesus obeyed God in every respect. When I am born again into Christ, I receive His righteousness. And this is a really good deal. You see, even if I didn't inherit Adam's sin, I would probably sin on my own, wouldn't I? If Adam sinned, I would sin. Even if I didn't inherit Adam, I would probably still sin. Inherit his sin, I'd probably still be able to muster up my own sin. But here's the deal. I could never earn Christ's righteousness. 
I could never earn His righteousness if it wasn't given to me in Christ. Ironically, the principle that condemns us is the very principle that saves us. We inherited sin through Adam so that we could inherit the righteousness of Jesus by faith in Him. And here too, the writer of Hebrews uses this principle of racial solidarity. When Abraham paid tithes, the Levites were still in his loins. Think about this. They were still part of his progeny. They were in his Levi gene, so to speak. Thus, the Levitical priests were paying tithes to Melchizedek by proxy through Abraham. And in doing so, was showing Melchizedek's priestly superiority to Levi. That's a Jewish argument. But, but it's airtight. This all illustrated that Jesus was a better priest than the Old Testament priests of Judaism. And this was encouraging to these Hebrews who read this letter. For it was saying to them that in leaving behind your old religion to follow Jesus, you've done the right thing. You have improved your lot because Jesus is a better priest than those Old Testament priests of Judaism. Follow the logic? Reminds me of the biology final. It was a tough class. And the final exam promised to be very, very difficult. The professor decided to give all of the students a break. And so he told the class that they could bring to the exam as much information as they could fit on a single piece of notebook paper. Well, most of the students, man, they wrote in tiny print trying to cram as much information as they possibly could on their 8.5 by 11 inch sheet of paper. Everybody except one student. He came to class. He laid his sheet of paper on the floor. And he had his friend, who happened to be a graduate student in biology, stand on the piece of paper. His friend was able to tell him everything that he needed to know. He was the only student in the biology class that day to get an A. Proving conclusively, it's not as much what you know as it is who you know that counts. And the same is true in religion. No one can enter the presence of a perfect, holy God on his own. You can only go as far as your priest is able to take you. That's why the Hebrews were besieged with doubt. In embracing Jesus, had they cut themselves off from the only priest they'd ever known, what were they going to do now without the Levitical priest? But here's how they're being assured. The writer's saying to them, it's okay, for Jesus is a better priest than the priests of Levi. Verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Aaron, of course, was one of the sons of Levi and became the father of the high priest lineage. Well, in Psalm 110, verse 4, David had prophesied that Messiah would be a member of this new priestly order, of the order of Melchizedek. If the Levites and the law they ushered in 
had done an effective job, had really gained for the people access to God, why then was this new priest needed? Why did David make this promise in Psalm 110 that Messiah would be after a different order, the order of Melchizedek? He says, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. This is interesting. With a new order of priesthood comes a new set of rules governing those priests and their duties. For he, or Jesus, of whom these things are spoken, belongs to another tribe, the tribe of Judah, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Jesus was born of the royal tribe, the tribe of Judah. The priest came from the tribe of Levi. Again, under the Old Testament, Jesus could have never been a priest. That's why God established a New Testament, a new covenant that contained a new priesthood and new requirements to govern them. Recall the symbols of Melchizedek that he came bringing with him when he came out of Salem. He came bringing the bread and the wine. What are they but the symbols of the new covenant? And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly command, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies, and again he quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, priestly authority was appointed by the law of Moses to the tribe of Levi, But under the new covenant, priestly authority isn't appointed, it's earned. And Jesus earned the role of priest by virtue of his resurrection from the dead and now his endless life. Jesus overcame death, hell, and the grave. Who now is better equipped to usher God's people into his presence than Jesus Christ? See, there are two types of authority. There's delegated authority, and there's earned authority. This is why when John Wayne rides into town, or when Jack Bauer comes onto the scene, I mean, the bad guys shape up, man. John or Jack, they might not be carrying their badge. They might have left it at home, but it doesn't matter. They're in charge by virtue of who they are and what they've done. I mean, John Wayne is in charge because he's the most respected guy in the room. When you're the Duke, you don't need a badge. And in the same way, this is true of Jesus. He's our high priest, not because of some arbitrary decree from an ancient sage, but because he is the most qualified person for the job. When Jesus shows up, he's the most respected man in the room. See, Levitical authority was a matter of pedigree, but Jesus' authority is a matter of integrity and eternity. Jesus didn't inherit a position. He merits a position. He lived a sinless life. He died an innocent death. He rose from the dead, and he ascended to God's right hand. Jesus pioneered his own way to God. The Levites were given the right to be priests, but Jesus earned his right That's what he's telling us here in these verses. Notice verse 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. 
The law made nothing complete. The law didn't tie together all the loose ends. The law left a lot of loose ends. The law got man started with God. It was sort of a remedial class. That's how you could view Judaism. It was a remedial class. It taught certain lessons, but it didn't finish anything. It didn't get people to God. He says, on the other hand, in Christ, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Under the law, the people's relationship with God was tenuous at best. There was no real assurance. Sin was like a grease stain that the law covered up. But sacrifices had to be repeated over and over, year after year. Obviously, the stain would bleed through. The law offered nothing permanent. It just covered sin. It didn't get out the stain. Notice verse 20. And inasmuch as he or Jesus was not made priest without an oath, for they, meaning the Levites, have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. God never intended or he never took an oath in regards to the Levitical priesthood. He never pledged himself to permanently support their ministry. For he knew that eventually they would be replaced. They would be replaced by Jesus. But in Psalm 110, when the priesthood of Jesus is predicted, notice God swears to support him eternally. The Lord has sworn you are a priest forever. God took an oath that Jesus would remain priest for all eternity. This is why the hope that Jesus brings is so much better. And there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Now now here was another weakness of the Levitical system. The Levites kept going to the bullpen Their starters could never finish the game. I mean, the ministry was transitory since they kept dying off, dying off, dying off. You know, the Jewish historian Josephus, he said that there were 83 high priests from the time of Aaron up until 70 AD when the temple was finally destroyed. 83 priests. The Jewish Talmud, it held an even higher number. It claimed 18 high priests served in Solomon's temple in over 300 in the rebuilt temple. The point is is that no high priest was permanent. You might say the Levites were here today and gone tomorrow. About the time you gained confidence in one, he'd die off. And you'd have to develop confidence in another. I mean, it was like the injury-prone Atlanta Braves. One player goes down and another guy gets called up. That's how the Levitical priest functioned. Verse 24. But he meaning Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Jesus doesn't die. Jesus never pulls a hamstring, nor blows out an elbow. Jesus is not here today and gone tomorrow. He's never on the DL. He never gets sent down to the minors. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ to secure your access to God, then you have the same confidence a hundred years from now as you will today. He is a priest forever. You can trust Him eternally. Notice verse 25. What a verse. Therefore, He is also able to save 
to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Once an eight-year-old boy came home from school with a stuffed animal he had won at the Valentine party. His dad asked him, he said, tell me, how did you win that prize? The little boy recounted, he said, well, Dad, he said, our teacher wrote all of our names down on a piece of paper and put them in a bowl. And then she picked out a name from the bowl, and it was me. That's when the little guy's countenance kind of fell, and guilty look spread across his face. And he said, but Dad, he said, I cheated. His puzzled dad asked him, he said, son, how could you have cheated? He looked up and he answered, he said, Dad, I prayed. Hey, realize there is tremendous power in prayer. Sometimes we wonder if God hears and answers our prayers. But that's not the issue that could, should concern us. Here's what we should be asking. Does God answer Jesus' prayers? And I think we would all conclude absolutely he does. Yes, he does. Well, that encourages us for Jesus is in heaven praying for you and me. What confidence that should give us. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. When I grow apathetic or when I get distracted, Jesus still stands before the eternal judge as my righteousness. When I blow it horribly, Jesus reminds the court that his blood is paid for my forgiveness. When I need strength or plead for mercy or desire patience or long to be loved, Jesus intercedes for me and secures for me a blessing. Because Jesus occupies eternity and always makes intercession, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Often verse 25 gets misread. Instead of save us to the uttermost, we read it, save us from the uttermost. Well, it is true that Jesus' blood can save even the most disgusting and despicable sinner. He can save the underbelly of society, the drug dealers and the prostitutes and the child molesters and the serial killers. Hey, he can save from the uttermost, even the guttermost. But that's not what this verse is teaching. The writer here says that Jesus is able to save us not from the uttermost, but to the uttermost. The emphasis here is not the extent from which he saves, but it is the extent to which he saves. I've heard people remark, oh, that guy was saved by the skin of his teeth. He just barely made it to heaven. That's not true. Nobody that Jesus saves just barely makes it to heaven. When Jesus saves you, my friend, you're as saved as you can get. You're not only saved from the uttermost, you're saved to the uttermost. All your sin, past and present and future, gets blotted out. Jesus' forgiveness is complete and it's total and it's permanent and it's forever. As long as you trust in Christ Jesus, your standing with God is as sure and steady and unchanging as it can be. Doesn't that give you hope? It should. You know, there are things in life that occur incrementally and gradually. Buying a house, for example. You, you, you know how this works. You pre-qualify for a loan, 
and then you find your house, and then you offer the contract, and then the buyer counters, and then you counter back, and then contingencies get added, and then the contract is finally signed. Then you actually go to qualify for the loan. Then the process really starts. Survey has to be done, title search, an inspection, a termite letter, on and on it goes. Thankfully, our relationship with God doesn't develop like that. It doesn't develop gradually. Did you know you don't have to pre-qualify with God? Aren't you glad there are no counter-offers? Aren't you especially glad there are no inspections? <laughs> God promises to take us as is. There's no waiting. There's no wondering if you'll be accepted, if the deal will actually go through. No, no. When you embrace Jesus Christ with your whole heart, God closes the transaction immediately. And he moves in spontaneously. From the very first moment you believe, you are as saved as you can possibly get. Yes, he saves us from the uttermost. But even more wonderfully, he saves us to the uttermost. His salvation is amazing. You could say we're saved from the guttermost to the uttermost. Verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. You see, Jesus is our high priest by virtue of his intrinsic worth and value, not just his pedigree like the Levites. He says, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Realize a cleanser's potency is determined by the number of applications it requires. <laughs> the Old Testament priests, they went back daily to offer their sacrifices. Every day they had to offer a new sacrifice. Jesus, on the other hand, he offered his sacrifice once and for all. He never needs to spill another drop of blood. Jesus' one sacrifice permanently cleanses us of our sin. And the blood of Jesus, it includes a degreaser. Remember that stain on the wall? Hey, it not only paints over the stain, it eradicates the spot. Jesus gets the stains out. He cleanses our sin. He doesn't just cover them. We're told, For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. I mean, the Levitical priests, they were just mortal men. Jesus, though, is God's Son. Who would you rather have as your priest? A mortal man or God's own Son? Well, you'd think the case would be closed after that, but there's another argument that requires or that uh, needs to be answered. For a priest is only as good as the temple in which he works. In other words, you could say you're the best figure skater in town, but if there's no ice rink, what good is it? You could say you're the best swimmer in town, but if there's no swimming pool, and likewise, for a priest to be effective, he needs a temple, does he not? He needs a place in which he can ply his trade. And chapter 8 tackles the subject of Jesus' temple. 
that he's not only a better priest, but he works in a better temple. Verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. The Levitical priests, they ministered in a man-made earthly tabernacle or the temple there in Jerusalem. But Jesus now ministers in the heavenly temple, the very throne room of God. The temple in Jerusalem was the very center of Jewish life and religion. And these Hebrew believers had been barred from their courts because of their faith in Jesus. Well, the writer of the, this letter wants them to understand that they have been ga- given access to a far greater temple. Not to worry about being barred from the Jerusalem temple. They now have access to the real temple, to heaven itself. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one who also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Now in other words, the tabernacle in the wilderness and then later Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, they were actually copies Or they were small-scale models of God's throne room in heaven. It's interesting that in the Revelation, when we just studied that uh, last fall, we find that the real deal temple is in heaven. And in Revelation, we see different articles there among the heavenly temple that resemble articles that were in the earthly temple. For example, there was the bronze bowls for washing. In the uh, Old Testament tabernacle, they were referred to as the brazen sea. In the New Jerusalem, we see the same thing. But this is now stretched out before God's throne. It's called the glassy sea. It's bigger. It's grander. The things on earth were just replicas of the real articles there in heaven. The same was true of the ark, the altar, the lampstands, remember, and on and on it goes. Here he's saying that The Levitical priests, they worked in the model, in the demo, whereas Jesus worked in the real deal, in the tabernacle in heaven itself. Verse 5. Now, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And here's a quote from Exodus 25, verse 40. Now, on Mount Sinai, Moses was shown a pattern of the heavenly throne room and of all of its furnishings. Now, how Moses was shown this heavenly pattern is a matter of great speculation among the rabbis. There's a passage in the Jewish Talmud that comments, An ark of fire and a table of fire and a candlestick of fire came down from heaven, then Moses saw and reproduced. That's an interesting thought. Some rabbis taught that the angel Gabriel appeared to Moses in a carpenter's apron holding models of the sacred furniture in in his hands. He then showed Moses how to build them. The Bible doesn't really give us specifics of how it happened, but we're certain of one thing, that when Moses descended from Mount Sinai, he not only held the two tablets of the Ten Commandments 
under one arm, but apparently he had blueprints under the other arm. For he had been given instructions on how to make the articles of the tabernacle. Again, the point here that the author's making is that the Jewish priests, they worshipped in the toy model, the cheap copy, whereas Jesus, he ministered in the real deal. Sort of like one of those car kits. You know, the body looks like a Ferrari, but it sits on a Volkswagen chassis. Might even have a Ford Pinto windshield in it but it looks like a Ferrari. Well, likewise, the temple in Jerusalem was nothing but a car kit. It was a copy of God's heavenly throne. The Old Testament priests, they drove the demo, whereas Jesus serves in the real deal. Verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Again, with a new priesthood came new and better promises. The Levites served under the inferior system, but Jesus is a priest under the new covenant. The rules by which he operates, the promises that he's allowed to make, are far better than those of the Old Testament priests. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. If the old covenant, if Judaism, if the old law and rules and temple had worked and really reconciled man to God, then a new covenant would have never been needed and initiated. But God did promise a new covenant. And here the writer, he quotes a lengthy passage now from Jeremiah chapter 31, which talks about this new covenant. He says, Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Those two stone tablets of Moses that were imprinted with God's law, here was the problem. They couldn't impart God's power to keep the law. So you got the law. Well, if you can't keep it, what's the deal? We not only needed the law, we needed the power to keep it. The law was a stipulation without any motivation. The law was like an x-ray. It was intended to diagnose the break, but it did nothing to offer any healing. The better covenant would bring healing and help and strength and power to our lives. Verse 10, still quoting from Jeremiah, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the better covenant. This is the new covenant under which we now serve and we now live. Under the new covenant, God no longer writes His law on stone tablets. He now etches his will and his intentions and his desires into human hearts. He writes his law on our hearts. In other words, when a person becomes a Christian, they're a new creation in Christ. You have received new instincts, new passions. When you become a Christian, my friend, God gives you a new heart. He puts in your heart a desire to love him and love others. He not only gives us the stipulation, he gives us the motivation to keep it. Dr. Christian Bernard was the first surgeon 
to perform a human heart transplant. Once he asked a patient if he wanted to see his old heart, Bernard, he took Philip Bellberg into a room and he opened up a cabinet. The doctor took out a glass jar and handed Philip his old heart. For a moment, there was nothing but silence. Philip Bellberg was the first man in history to hold in his hands his own heart. Finally, he asked Dr. Bernard a few technical questions about the procedure. And that's when Philip, he picked up the jar and he sort of kind of took a last long look at his heart and he set it down on the cabinet and he said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He set it down on the counter and he walked away and he left it behind forever. And this is what happens to the person who embraces Jesus as their Lord and Savior. A heart transplant occurs. God cuts out that defiant heart and he replaces it with a compliant heart. You receive new desires. You get a heart that's first impulse is now to love God and love others. And he places you on intimate terms with God. You get a new heart. You leave that old heart behind and you never bother with it again. You now have a new life in Christ. Verse 11 For none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother. He's still quoting from Jeremiah 31. Saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Under the new covenant, we'll all know the Lord. He gives access to everyone who's in Christ. We can come to God as our Abba, as our Father. We can run to the throne of grace for help in time of need. Under the new covenant, there are no second-hand experiences with God. You've heard it said that God has no grandkids. Everybody that's His kid has been personally born again by His Spirit. You know God, not by proxy or by priest alone, but in Christ we know Him personally through Jesus Christ. What a blessing. He says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Isn't that beautiful? That means what God forgives, He forgets. When you come to Jesus, He forgives all of your sin. Past, present, future. He cleans your slate. Do you know that? Do you believe that? You should. He gives you a brand new start. Verse 13. In that He says, A new covenant He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The author of Hebrews is assuring these Hebrew Christians that it's no longer necessary to live under the old covenant. That Judaism and all its rules, all its rituals, all its requirements, all its priests and its penalties, they're now archaic and they're outdated with the dawning of Christianity. God struck a new deal, a new covenant with His people. The new covenant it promises us three things. Jesus has given us a new heart, He's given us a new start, and He gives us a new part. We're now to live and walk by faith. All we have to do is believe. And there we have Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. What wonderful chapters.